Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. First elected to Parliament in 1974 as the MP for Carnarvon, David Wigley served Plaid Cymru in Westminster, the Welsh Assembly and the House of Lords, including two since as leader, firstly between 1981 and 1984, and again from 1991 to 2000. In 2011, he took his seat in the House of Lords as Baron Wigley of Carnarvon and has just celebrated 10 years as a life peer. Hello, David. Hello there. Thank you so much for joining us today. As we're talking about the House of Lords and celebrating your 10 years there, did you have any qualms about taking a peerage? (laughs) Well, of course, anybody uh, with a Plaid background would have some doubts. Plaid Cymru had, of course, uh, resisted sending people to the House of Lords right up until that time. What happened was this. In 2006, there was a Government of Wales Act which gave the National Assembly, as then was, the power to legislate, but only on condition that an order was passed by both the House of Commons and the House of Lords on every single instance that they wanted to use this power, and a no vote from the House of Lords could kill the thing stone dead. So the unelected second chamber at Westminster could frustrate the will of the elected government of Wales. Now, this struck by government as a nonsense. And uh, if it was going to... Uh, Uh, be uh, as a background for the following four years in which we were, of course, coalition partners with Labour in government, then quite clearly there was an argument for us to have a voice to at least speak up for the need to legislate when matters came before the second chamber at Westminster. That was the background to Plaid Cymru having an internal election in 2007 and electing three uh, of us, uh, Janet Davis, Edward William and myself, to um, go to uh, the House of Lords on the understanding that had been reached with the then Blair government that we would get three seats there. But of course, Tony Blair disappeared fairly quickly and Gordon Brown came in and Gordon Brown indicated that over his dead body would he appoint any nationalists to the House of Lords. So there was Janet, Irville and myself, in limbo. And we had to wait until 2011 when there's a change of government And it's quite ironic, isn't it, that it was a a Tory government on which we had to depend to get any sort of constitutional rights. But look, it is an outrage that the leader of one party at Westminster would deny another constitutional party that had elected members in the House of Commons a right to speak in the second chamber of the Westminster Parliament. And that just underlines the nonsense of the situation. In the last few years, the Lords has been perceived in Wales as some sort of moderating force on this largely... English governing House of Commons, does that show that this sort of often derided system is, is working in a weird way? And do you, think there's, <laughs> do you think there's any sort of case for retaining the Lords or, or do you think it must be reformed? Well, quite clearly, one can't justify on any basis whatsoever a second chamber of parliament being formulated in this way. I mean, the background historically, of course, was that there were people who were hereditary peers, and that has long since gone, and now there are about 90 hereditary peers there out of a total of 800. But it's a non-elected chamber, and that means however intelligent or reasonable the policies supported in the House of Lords may be, the chamber doesn't have a credibility. It doesn't have a legitimacy. And until it becomes an elected chamber, assuming that there is a need for a second chamber at all, then it has to be on the basis of being um, elected in order to give that reasonable voice, which very often does arise in the House of Lords in its debates, to give a momentum and a force to that voice so that it has a constructive impact on the overall policy outcome uh, reached by Westminster. But um, 
that is not to justify the House of Lords as it now is. What has been your experience of being a member of the House of Lords? Has it changed your view on the formation of the British state at all? Well, quite clearly, spending 10 years anywhere has an impact on you. <laughs> if I had 10 years in Her Majesty's prisons, I'm sure that would leave an impact on me. Uh, I think by way of background, it's worth noting that uh, there is quite a substantial presence from Wales um, in the House of Lords. There's some 50 members there that have some background links with Wales, some more recent and more direct than others. A number, of course, former members of Parliament, um, like Barry Jones appeal, Neil Kinnock, uh, um, people like Ted Rowlands. So, yes, there is a body of people there, a mixing with whom obviously um, helps you develop your ideas and gives you a platform on which to advocate ideas. One of the main differences uh, to the House of Commons is that you have in the House of Lords many people who have a huge experience um, the age profile in the House of Lords is highly regrettable. When I went in first, there were seven times more members aged over 90 than there were under 40. <laughs> that tells you the nature of the place. But at that time, of course, you couldn't retire. When you retire, you retired by being carried out foot first from the chamber. That nature meant that the membership, many of whom had been experts in their own spheres, whether in the higher education, in industry, in the trade unions, in the armed services. You had an expertise there. And many people argue the case that there's a need to retain the House of Lords in order to retain that expertise. Now, there is a validity in that argument. What I point out is that very often the expertise was 20 years ago and is now 20 years out of date. Um, and you need a system, if you're going to bring in expertise, that you bring in contemporary expertise that can contribute to the arguments as they are today. In the question of having um, a second chamber at all, there are some countries, of course, like New Zealand and Latvia, that don't have a second chamber. And Wales, I, I certainly don't believe that Wales needs a second chamber. Um, small countries generally don't need it so much. But in the case of England or Britain as it now is, the reality is that the House of Commons just can't handle the workload that it has. Give you an instance, a welfare reform bill a few years ago came to us in the House of Lords, 80% of which hadn't had a moment's scrutiny in the House of Commons. And we had to do the working committee in the House of Lords. Now, then there will always be a role of that sort in the English context. And sometimes the English context is what's written large as a British context. And therefore, if the House of Lords is to change, then it has to be changed in a way that uh, accommodates that requirement. The other point that I would uh, um, stress is this, that when there have been attempts to democratise the House of Lords, such as a bill a few years ago under the Cameron government, Liberal Democrats had pressed this forward and reducing the size of the House of Lords from 800 to 300, um, a system of election by proportional repre representation on a regional basis, etc. A very reasonable package, and that would have retained 60 of the 300 members as um, people would come from the crossbench background, the, the people who are outside party politics. It was a reasonable proposal. Those who opposed it were the Labour Party, as well as the Conservative Party, because what they saw would be chamber elected by proportional representation, having a veto over the first chamber and a legitimacy in doing so, so that neither the Conservative Party nor the Labour Party could have an overall majority in both chambers and would have to work on something like a coalition basis. And Labour didn't like that more than the Conservatives liked it. They'll have to start taking some lessons from Labour in Wales about coalition building, I suppose, if, if they ever <laughs> want to support that. Um, we're talking about constitutional change and the British state is in a huge state of flux really now at the moment with 
the end of the EU transition period. Do you think there's any positives that can come from Brexit? <laughs> Not many. Um, I was very strongly opposed to Brexit uh, on both political uh, and economic um, grounds. I've always been very strongly pro-European because I believe that is in the context of a modern forward-looking Europe that Wales is most comfortable. It takes its place side by side with many other small nations, seven or eight smaller than Wales, and with larger nations as, as well. It would mean that Wales would be within a united Europe in a, an area where there is a total freedom of movement of people, goods and money. So you don't build artificial barriers. You look to maximize your contribution to your own continent and your ability to take in the culture from that continent. Now that was swept away by the Brexit vote, a highly unfortunate vote and very unfortunate that was the case in Wales. But looking back, I can understand why that happened in Wales. I think there were two or three features that came in. And one of them was that in the old industrial valleys, there had been so much neglect by successive governments, both Labour and Conservative, that there was a frustration and an outcry. It was similar to the outcry that you had in the old Rust Belt areas in Pennsylvania and other parts of the United States. The movement that, of course, elected President Trump. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that the valleys of South Wales were going down that avenue or in that direction, but they were looking for a way to raise a voice of protest against what was happening. And they perceived the European Union as part of the establishment for that. And therefore, we um, had the no vote in Wales. Of course, being in the situation that we are now, we have to try rebuilding. It's very much more difficult. And it's particularly difficult because there was no attempt made by either the Boris Johnson government or by Theresa May before that to seek some sort of a compromise perhaps along the lines that Norway has with a, a free trade area agreement in general terms, um, but we wouldn't be part of the political union. That was a compromise available. And in the House of Lords, that certainly commanded a majority. That sort of a, um, a compromise package would have carried in the House of Lords. But of course, um, Boris Johnson particularly was dead set on showing that he got Brexit done and it didn't really matter how much damage it did to anybody. And now in Wales particularly, we're picking up the bits and we're seeing the consequences. Do you think then that Plaid's policy in the last general election to go for revoke was wrong or made compromise harder? Um, now, with regard to the referendum um, result, it could be interpreted in different ways by different people, of course. Whether it was a vote for a no-deal Brexit, the ultimate um, worst possibility of all, which we have avoided, but only just in some of the attributes of a no-deal um, um, Brexit in the current settlement. There, there, there was a range of opinion. So one could legitimately argue that unless we had a compromise balance, then there was a case for revoking um, what had happened. But you can only revoke if the people themselves decide to do so. And the question was, do we give people another chance to do so? I, I think there are many, many people now, certainly uh, people uh, with whom I'm in touch in, in Wales, people in the farming fraternity, people in the industry, manufacturing industry, which was, of course, my personal background, um, people who are uh, um, fishermen, um, seashell uh, um, fishermen, mussel fishermen, and uh, all the rest, who are now seeing the damage that Brexit is doing to them. You look at the port of Holyhead where the volume of traffic has dropped by two thirds. Some of it may come back, but a lot of traffic from Ireland is finding its way directly to Europe. I mean, we are only now starting to pay the price for what we have 
um, voted for in Wales, regrettably. And uh, you can act in haste, but uh, unfortunately you have to uh, regret at your leisure. Were you at all surprised that Wales voted leave? Obviously, in hindsight, it seems a bit easier to understand. But at the time, were you surprised? I was immediately so, but perhaps I shouldn't have been. During that campaign, I took part in the campaign, and it became clear as the campaign was going on that you had not only the element in the old industrial areas, whether it was the South Wales Valleys or up in Deeside in the northeast, you also had the agricultural fraternity and farmers who were absolutely fed up with what they perceived as the Brussels bureaucracy, forgetting, of course, that the money that they were getting and the underpinning of their own businesses came by virtue of that. You have to have checks and balances. You had frustrations of all sorts being thrown at the uh, European Union. And the campaign in favour of remaining was a very poor campaign indeed. I mean, the whole idea of the European Union, of European unity, grew after two world wars in the last century, two disastrous wars. And it was to ensure that never again would Europe go to battle against itself. But the, the idea, the vision of European unity was born. Now then that is an idealistic model of Europe, of uh, a growing unity on the background of a common culture. And that is something which was totally ignored in the campaign um, to remain in the European Union. They uh, talked about um, the perceived uh, economic advantages, and those certainly were there, but Britain's place in the world and the way to get a stronger voice uh, for, for, for Westminster. Those were not the ideals that would fire up young people to say, yes, this is a vision for which we want to fight. Now, there are things that are wrong in the European Union. Goodness only knows the things that need to be put right, but you shouldn't throw the baby away with the bathwater. And we're now in a position where we have to start rebuilding from outside, and we have quite a challenge before us. With all these factors, you've got Brexit as one, you've got obviously COVID-19 pandemic. Do you think these are the reasons that we're seeing this huge swell in support for independence in Wales? Well, of course, these are two of the background factors. I think there's a far more that comes into than that. One of the reasons is that we have had National Assembly, as was now our Senate, for 20 years by now. And we've seen that we are capable of governing ourselves. We're capable of taking perfectly rational and balanced and good decisions on matters, environmental factors. You think of things ranging from um, plastic bags through to the very high level of recycling that we get in Wales. You look at how the health services um, managed to cope with the um, pandemic now, despite the difficulties that have been there, by and large, we've done as good a job, if not better, in Wales than they had at Westminster. And when you get the understanding that we are capable of taking decisions on these matters, why on earth don't we take decisions on a whole range of other matters? And I think that, that appeals to young people, particularly when we have things like the, um, the Future Generations Act in Wales, the, the environmental approach that we have in Wales, that appeals more to young people. You've got a second factor. You've got many people who are traditionally from a Labour background who have come around to the pro-independent view or at least are willing to um, countenance it because they're seeing with Scotland having taken decisions that lead possibly to independence that already has led to the eclipse of the Labour Party in Scotland. It's next to impossible for Labour to form a government in Westminster. So we're going to be bound into, at best, coalition governments in Westminster, at worst, right-wing or ultra-right-wing governments. 
So people with a Labour background are saying, well, if we're governing ourselves in Wales, there's a chance at least that we can do so on an acceptable social agenda with progressive economic policies that meet the aspirations and the needs of Wales. And if Scotland is going to be going on its own way, Northern Ireland already uh, there are people who are talking about the reunification um, of Ireland because of the effect of Brexit. And remember, a majority in the north of Ireland voted to remain in Europe. If Northern Ireland and Scotland leave, leaving Wales as the only part of a so-called United Kingdom left, being uh, trampled all over by Westminster, it's not surprising that more people now are looking towards independence. And we need to show what model of independence could work and what are the conditions necessary to make it work? I was going to ask you if you were shocked at all in the growth, but it, it doesn't seem that's the case. I'm surprised in a way that it has come suddenly like this. And I think that there are the, well, three factors. Um, you've had the Brexit element that we've discussed. You have the Scottish independence referendum that came um, fairly close. And you're seeing the ham-fisted way in which um, the Boris Johnson government is handling an issue um, such as uh, um, the COVID challenge. These are the factors that are coming together now. So it's a confluence of events um, as well as aspirations. When do you think independence could happen? Do you think it's a sort of in the next 10 years possibility or do you think there's still maybe another generation or so to oh, go? It's, a, it's certainly possible in the next 10 years for um, Wales to vote for independence but I, I think the questions that will arise are events in Northern Ireland and in Scotland in a much shorter time scale than that over the next two or three years. If Northern Ireland uses its right to have a reunification poll and uh, that is carried in the North and in the South then they would be leaving the United Kingdom if Scotland um, goes um, for uh, independence, the SNP government uh, re-elected with a substantial majority, giving it a mandate, then the question will be arising in two or three years' time. And the, that question must be confronted by us in Wales as well. We can't just ignore it. But neither can we ignore how the Westminster side, the uh, centralist side, the right wing of English politics will react to this. Now, they could either just put up the shutters and say no, and it could be uh, quite a nasty scene, and hopefully it doesn't come to that. Or, and never forget this, the English state has a capability of moving its footwork so rapidly in order to try and avoid certain eventualities. And it's not impossible to imagine that Westminster decides not to have, a, if they've got to have a referendum, not to have a simple referendum, yes, no, on one question, but to put in a second question with what was called in the run-up to the 2014 referendum, Devo Max. Now then, had they put Devo Max on the paper in 2014, my understanding from friends in Scotland is that it would have walked it. They may have missed the boat in missing 2014, but they may try reintroducing something like that, which might in this instance by now mean the remodeling of the British state with a federal, a quasi-federal, or a confederal approach to it. In which case, independence for Wales, if it's in the context of those sort of changes to ameliorate what's happening in Scotland and Northern Ireland, it may be something that comes naturally as a part of the changing of the political edifice within which we live. On that federalism, confederalism point, do you think there's any chance that Scotland is too far gone now to accept a, a form of federalism or confederalism? 
In some ways, yes. I mean, clearly 2014 was the, the point at which that should have been brought in if um, there was a, a willingness in London to consider it, because it, it requires England to change a lot as well as um, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Um, and there probably wasn't an appreciation um, of the reality, political reality, as, uh, um, as far as Scotland was concerned, within the corridors of Westminster and Whitehall. By now, if there was a really far-reaching confederal model brought, brought forward, and a con difference between a confederal model and a federal model, uh, uh, as you're certainly well aware, um, is that in a confederal model, the unit, be it Wales, be it Scotland, has the right to secede. And the uh, activities undertaken on a central basis may be only those that can best be done there and, and by agreement, by concordat, things like defence policy. Now, that if as radical a package as that were put forward as an alternative, I just don't know how the Scottish people would react. There will be all sorts of barriers thrown up against independence in any referendum, and they will now include, of course, the reality of us being outside the European Union. It was so much easier to argue the case from a Welsh point of view as well as a Scottish point of view if we're all within the European Union and you have the free movement of people, goods and money between nations of these islands and the Union itself. If independence means that you're not part of a free movement within the United Kingdom, then that clearly would raise problems. I mean, it's absolute nonsense to talk of independence for Wales, meaning that you build a barrier stopping people moving from uh, across Office Dyke. I mean, that, 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 that is ludicrous. That's not the world we're living in. We want an independence that's a positive, outward-looking, outward forward-moving um, dynamic, not something that is trying to turn us to the past. So in asking whether Scotland, and it is Scotland we're talking about, I think Northern Ireland will be determined on different factors. If Scotland is willing to compromise, it would have to be on that, that sort of a model. And I would think that that is a sort of model that Wales would be willing to look at as well. And it's interesting to see now that within the Labour Party in Wales, you're having individuals, even pretty high up individuals, who don't rubbish the idea of independence, but probably think of it in those sort of terms. But I have my doubts whether Westminster and the powers that be at Westminster will relinquish the powers and the controls they've got they are so, so selfish with them, so proud of them, so greedy of them. I suspect they will hold on. And as so often in the unwinding of the British Empire, it is too little too late. And that would be a tragedy. Obviously, the Plaid uh, Constitution talks about an independent Wales in Europe. I think a lot of people have tried to interpret that one way or the other, depending on their particular uh, view on the European Union. Obviously, to you, it, it probably means an independent Wales within the European Union. But if an independent Wales were to join the European Union without England doing so also, that would be very problematic in terms of trade and border movement, wouldn't it? So does, well, does that uh, policy have to change ever so slightly now? Well, it, its interpretation has changed with the outcome of the referendum and the passing of the legislation and our departure on the 1st of January. So, yes, that has changed. The, the meaning uh, has changed. But even taking that as the worst possible scenario, the most difficult scenario to persuade people in Wales to support, the model that we have is the model between Northern Ireland and the um, Irish Republic, where there is a free movement of people and of money and of goods. Now, the European Union has accepted that in that context. 
So there is no theoretical basis why it shouldn't be possible between Wales and England. But in talking about Wales in Europe, yes, we did mean within the European Union. People of Wales have voted against that. But there are alternatives. There are models that bring in a free trade area group, such as I mentioned Norway um, earlier, there are others as well, where it might be possible for us to have that sort of partnership with Europe, where we would be in Europe. But if England was also within that sort of a free movement area, you avoid having the barriers. Now, then that is possible. And you can get that to work if there is imagination and goodwill. And that's what's in such short supply at Westminster, particularly under the present leadership. So we've been talking about independence, and obviously we've seen in the last year or so a sort of stratospheric rise in terms of support. I think they were talking, the Telegraph of all papers the other day was talking about how, yes, Cymru's had a growth in membership of 750%. Plaid Cymru's not seen a equivalent growth in support. It's gone up a couple of points in the polls and down a couple of points in the polls. It's been swinging one way or the other. Why do you think it is that Plaid can't, harness that support for independence for their own electoral prospects? Well, I'm not quite sure whether Plaid has put independence up front in a general election in that way. The circumstances haven't been um, in a, a Senate election, a National Assembly election, haven't had that as a backdrop. And the first election under that sort of scenario will be forthcoming. And I believe that it is an ideal situation for Plaid to be putting forward its full platform because the argument by now is on Plaid's territory. These are arguments with which Plaid are experienced and are conversant and hopefully can put forward a coherent case. Now then, in order to attract people from other parties um, and people who are of no party, remember the 16 year olds are coming forward to vote for the first time now, there will be people who haven't voted, there'll be seven years, won't there, people who haven't voted in um, a Senate election who'll be voting for the first time. and. There's a need to catch their imagination. And without in any way being disparaging, I have a lot of respect for the present government um, led by Mark Drakeford. But the one thing that is clear is that they are looking tired and they're looking that they've run out of energy. And at this point in time, Wales needs more than anything that vitality, that imagination, that envisagement of what's possible for the future of our country. And for that to become contagious and people to say, yes, we can do it, let's have a go. And I think Adam Price is in an ideal position to lead that. And I think that there, there are um, young members of Plaid Gymru, both in the National Assembly and as candidates, who can transmit that. I know when, when I won the um, Arvon seat in 1974 and David Ellis Thomas won, uh, Mary then was, he was age 27, I was age 30. I know how the dynamic of youth was infectious at that point in time. And there were young people telling their parents, you've got to vote for this because the future of Wales can depend upon it. And that can happen again. And I want to see the young people of Wales saying, what we've got, yes, we've got it, but it's not good enough. We want a better future. And we want to build that for ourselves because we can't depend on anybody else to do so. And please, mum and dad, please, grandparents, will you help us to do that by lending your support to this project that is now opening up. Now, if that can catch the public imagination, then anything can happen. Look, in the election in 1999, when I was Plaid leader, we got 28% uh, in the constituency vote, 30% on the regional list vote. We were within 5% of Labour on the, uh, that 30, 30, 34.7, I think it was something like that. We got 17 seats. 
a few thousand more votes and we would have probably got 23, 24 seats. We might have been the largest party. It is possible to do that. They thought it wasn't possible for us even to come second in 1999. We nearly came first. Now that can happen again. And I'm determined to do my part to make that happen. You talk a little bit there about David Ellis Thomas. Obviously, you got elected at the same time you stood in leadership elections against him. Are you slightly surprised that he's now an independent minister in a Labour administration? Not the way things have uh, uh, unrolled over the last few years. I'm not surprised. I think he was a first-class presiding officer for the National Assembly, um, taking the seat from day one and helping to build the Assembly. And I personally was sad that he didn't choose to retire um, in 2011, was it, the election then, um, when he had um, served um, three rounds as presiding officer and uh, had done a very good job of it. It's been a challenge for him uh, in the job, a less senior job than probably he'd hoped to get within any coalition government. It's not a coalition government. It's a Labour government supported by Kirsty and Davidell to give them a majority. It hasn't gone down particularly well in his own constituency, but then it wouldn't, would it, if he'd changed um, sides like that. Um, and I'm sorry that his career might end in, in that way, because he has played a significant part, not just within the House of Commons, then the House of Lords, but with bodies such as the Welsh language and board when he was chair, chair, chairing that uh, um, some years ago, he, and in the world of Welsh education, he has played a significant part. How is the Plaid Cymru of today different to the one you joined? Ah, well, of course, uh, at the time when uh, I joined the party, um, I first supported Plaid Cymru. I stood as a Plaid Cymru candidate in school in the 1959 um, mock parliamentary elections. So I go back a long way. Plaid Cymru was an idealistic party. It was a party of protest very much. At that time, the protest was against Tuered. It was a party fired up by the unfairness suffered by the Welsh language. And of course, that led to the form formation in the 1960s of the Welsh Language Society that took the arguments concerning the language outside party politics and it was by pressure group. And Plaid Cymru today is a party of government. We have been um, a coalition partner in the government of Wales for four years, but we are now uh, the governing party in four of our local authorities, two of the four police commissioners in Wales, um, apply Cymru people. In other words, we are a party that is taking responsibility onto our own shoulders. But I hope Applied Cymru is still a party, as it was under Gwynevere Evans back in those early days when I joined, a party that can appeal to people who have a vision of Wales and of Wales within a wider context, within the European context, as I put it forward. Because Applied Cymru, when I, in the early uh, years I was a member, was you could describe it as being Eurosceptic. And by now, it sees the context, the European context, which actually Saunders Lewis had seen way back in the early years of Plaid Cymru, that Wales should exist within uh, a European context because our language and culture and our history and our heritage, our Christianity, everything has come from this common European background that we have. So yes, Plaid Cymru is a, um, a, a different party, but it's a party that can inspire young people in Wales to join. You know, one of the things that I've seen since I returned to Westminster was how in our parliamentary team, we have young people of outstanding ability um, working um, for us. For example, uh, the, the first um, researcher that we had uh, when I, I returned was Delith Jewell. And she is now an assembly member um, for South Wales East and is a, a candidate, I think, in Caerphilly for the forthcoming election. She won the award in Westminster 
as the most capable and brightest uh, of the young research of the researchers of any party of any age of any party both in the House of Commons and the House of Lords. She came number one. That is the caliber that we've got. We have other people, strangely enough, many coming through from the Rumney Valley. We have uh, Ben O'Keefe there. I uh, had uh, Helen Brooks-Jones there in this team. Young people who with a contribution to make, yes, in Westminster, but to Wales. And if we're attracting people like that, we have young candidates. I mean, in Pontypridd, Helen Vachan is a candidate, somebody um, who has worked into the community in the same way as I tried to do in Merthyr. She's done so there. In other words, I can see that the same motivation is there amongst young people in all parts of Wales now. And if we can harness that, and if we can fulfill the promise that they are looking for from their leaders within the party, if we can keep them together and show that we are willing to build and to work with people in other parties where necessary, to build that future Wales, then they will come on board and they will make a tremendous difference. You, you mentioned there about Merthyr Tydfil. Despite representing Carnarvon for most of your career, your first elected role was the councillor for Park Ward in, in Merthyr Tydfil. How did you manage to, to win such a staunchly Labour area? And if I remember <laughs> correctly, Labour actually came third in that election, didn't they? They fell behind yourselves and the Communist Party. The question, perhaps, if I can cheekily suggest you should be asking, is how did I win it eight months after having moved to live in, uh, in Merthyr? I, I was very lucky in 1971. I was appointed to be head of finance and administration in the Hoover factory, which employed 5,000 people at that time in Merthyr. And therefore, it was a, a very senior job. And I think it was quite a shock for the electors in Park Ward in Merthyr, as well as for my colleagues in Hoover to find me standing for the council because top management didn't usually stand for the council, but I did. And there were a number of factors that came in. One was the background that there'd just been a by-election. Emrys Roberts had run a tremendous campaign there. He got 11,500 votes that Ted Rowlands for Labour held, held the seat and Clyde had a momentum. And look, let's be honest, it was Emrys's momentum that helped sweep me through. But you're right to pinpoint the fact that in that election, uh, Labour weren't second. Arthur Jones, the communist, was second. I only had a 38 majority, I think, uh, over him. And independent Labour were fourth. So you had that spectrum. Plaid Cymru, communist, Labour, independent Labour. Now, what that meant was that I was able to garner a lot of votes, borrow a lot of votes from people who may not have been natural Plaid sympathisers, whether they were Liberal Democrats or ratepayers or what have you, who were willing to give Plaid a vote because they saw something new and fresh here and different, and somebody who wasn't part of the Labour establishment. And let's remember, Labour had been torn by the sacking of S.O. Davis as their candidate in 1970. And the by-election that uh, happened um, in 1972 was because of um, his death. And the wounds were still running very, very sorely indeed at that time. So there was a split in the Labour vote and some of the, uh, uh, of the SO supporters came over to support us, both Emrys Roberts and support myself. I mean, the challenge I had, uh, there were eight wards and we put forward four candidates, that's all that we could muster. And I was the only one who got in at that time. Uh, the old Merthyr County Borough Council was comprised of 27 Labour, two independent Labour, those were SOs, um, supporters, two ratepayers, and myself. So the spectrum there was uh, quite something to be behold. And um, I went up a very steep learning curve there, um, uh, um, being there uh, at the age of 29 um, and only just having moved into the um, county borough to live. 
but the perhaps the fulfillment of that movement came a couple of years later in 1976 when Plaikimri actually took control of the new Merthyr Council, um, winning an overall majority over all of the parties. And uh, we lost then in 1979, but it was uh, an opportunity to show what could be done. And I believe that is a justification for the fighting at local level, because it's a responsibility to show not just that you've got the right ideas on the all Wales level or the international level, but you also have to deliver if you can within your own community. And we try to do that. Is that the model you think that Plaid needs to take forward in terms of reaching out into these traditionally labour areas? Is it ground, working hard on the ground or is it, is it something else? Well, that certainly is a very important factor because um, Sid Morgan, who was one of uh, um, Phil Williams's um, colleagues in the famous 1968 Kerfili by-election, Jill Evans's uh, partner, now living in Rhonda, of course, he had a uh, saying that if you teach people that you're talking sense when you're talking about their dustbins, they'll believe you that you're talking sense when you're talking about a parliament in Cardiff. And there's a lot of truth in that, that the reality of political life and political decisions is how it impacts people within their own area. How does public policy impact those people in Pontypridd who have suffered from the floods, for example? How does it impact those communities in Blaina Gwent or in the Rumney Valley? where they've lost the basic industry and they haven't got new jobs fit for their young people to build a future within their own communities. When you can catch people's imagination in that way, then they will come with you. And I believe that if we can do that, building from the bottom up, you don't build any building from the top down, you build from the bottom up. That means from community up and from the community's needs up and the community's valleys upwards. If you do that in every part of Wales, then you can get a platform on which to build bigger and uh, more far-reaching changes that I believe we need. But that will depend on getting young people in these areas fired up and willing to take responsibility on their own shoulders. It's not enough just to protest. You have to put forward an alternative vision and you have to show how that vision can be turned into reality. And that's what we need to do. How do you think Plaid will do then in this upcoming Senate election? There's no reason at all why we don't do very well indeed. I mean, it's a far better backdrop for us than it was for me in 1999 in that first election, where we thought we were going to be a very hard push to get out of third place, or whether we could beat the Tories into second place. Now then, given what's happening in Wales, the interest there is in independence, the changes taking place in Scotland and Ireland, people are now thinking on an agenda where Plaid is the party that can give a leadership and is also putting forward an alternative government, so a government, a Labour-led government, which uh, is looking fairly jaded. I believe there's a time for new ideas, new vision, and I think that Adam Price is the ideal person for putting that forward. His roots in the industrial South Wales, his training as an economist being highly relevant to the, uh, what we're facing, the way he can relate to people and inspire people, I believe can get uh, the support that he needs. So. There's no reason at all why Plaid shouldn't be looking at 20 and plus seats in the National Assembly. Getting an overall majority would be very difficult, but it's going to be difficult for any party, the way things have worked through by now. I mean, Labour doesn't have an overall majority now. So uh, I think it'd be unrealistic to say, yes, Plaid is going to have an overall majority. We can aim at being the largest party. That's what we should be doing. And we can certainly aim at being very close indeed on Labour's heels in order to uh, um, challenge them for the leadership uh, within the um, uh, Senate. 
And remember this, it was in 2007 that the SNP just about squeaked through to become the, um, the largest party in the Scottish Parliament at that time. And they came from a background where their vote had been quite similar to Floyd's. It can be done if you catch the imagination and have the programme and you have the dynamic um, to turn that into reality. And I believe we have it. You bring up the SNP. If you looked at Wales and Scotland in 1999, you would have thought it was Plaid that would have taken that step forward and been this governing party because you did better than the SNP did in their equivalent election in 1999. Why do you think Plaid have not been able to recreate that success on a Welsh level? Well, I think in some ways, um, Plaid Cymru helped Labour um, to, the, uh, to the position that they're in in Wales, in that Plaid Cymru gave Labour an almighty shock in 1999. It wasn't just that we'd won the seats we had. We came within a stone's throw, a few hundred votes uh, um, in the Cunnan Valley seat, for example, a couple of thousand votes uh, in Pontypridd. We were very clo close to um, winning uh, far more seats, and that meant we were a party of government. Now then, it didn't need a genius for um, Labour to realise well, they had to do something about it. And Rodri Morgan, um, when he came in after Alan Michael, there was a false start for Labour in a way uh, under Alan Michael. Ro Rodri Morgan um, had this concept of clear red water between himself leading a government, a Labour government in Cardiff Bay to the Labour government that was in Westminster. Um, in other words, he was grabbing the radical end of the political spectrum the grounds that Clyde undoubtedly would have been aiming to take up. And to that extent, it was quite a, a clever move on his behalf, but we helped him by giving them such a shock at that time. The SNP in Scotland um, in the mid-2000s, uh, 2000, after the 2005 general election, probably it was, and um, Alex Salmond was uh, then leading the party, became a highly professional organisation. They got a, a quite a lot of resources in and use the resources to build up a credibility, both in terms of the policy content, getting specialist advice, and also in how that policy content was presented, the way they put it in the literature and in uh, televisual presentations with all the rest of the people. They did a professional job about it. And winning power, and even more importantly, using power responsibly, is a professional challenge. It's not something that happens by accident. You have to work at it, you have to plan for it, you have to have the right people in the right place. And suddenly, if these factors happen to come together, it catches the public imagination. And that happened in Scotland in 2007, and they've never looked back. And then it can happen again in Wales. We've missed the boat a little bit in recent years, but we can come back. I mean, we're certainly strong enough to do so. We're doing so on several more levels um, uh, across Wales at the moment, and there's no reason at all why we can't do so in this election. Do you think why, one of the reasons why the SNP have done so well comparatively to Plaid is that, at least in the eyes of, of some, Plaid are viewed as a Welsh language party or, or a party for Welsh speakers? Do you think there's still some sort of old bigotry in a weird way that thinks that Plaid is just for Welsh speakers? Well, there may be uh, amongst older people who think in those terms, but the revolution that I've seen in my lifetime is the way in which the Welsh language has become something that there's an ownership of felt by people across party boundaries. I remember an incident in the House of Commons when I was a member of parliament, when somebody on the Tory benches, uh, I think it was, raised the question of what was the cost of teaching Welsh? And if you divided it by the number of Welsh speakers, wasn't it an outrageous sum? 
And it was Alan Rogers, a Labour MP from Rhonda, that got up and said, hey, that's the wrong calculation. You don't divide the cost of the Welsh language between those who speak it. You divide it by everyone living in Wales because the Welsh language belongs to the whole of the Welsh nation. And I think that is a change that has happened during my lifetime. You know, one of the early fights that I had in Merthyr was to get a Welsh school established. There wasn't a single Welsh school there. And we had two boys, uh, two older boys who sadly um, died. But we were looking, where will they get their education? There wasn't a Welsh school in the whole borough. And uh, we had a tremendous campaign and we eventually won it. And I won't go into the detail now. But what I was going to say is this. In um, three, four weeks' time, I've been invited by the Merthyr Council to take part in a ceremony acknowledging the um, plan being turned into reality for a third Welsh school um, in the borough, um, where it just shows the way in which the Welsh language has been taken to heart, and not just by people in Plaid Cymru, but by people across the political spectrum. And that, I think, is as it should be because the language is the language that belongs to everyone, even the Brexiteers speaking Welsh, and they have every right to do so. I will challenge them on their Brexit uh, credentials. I will not challenge them on the right to do so in the Welsh language. And I'm delighted that uh, the Labour government, uh, when Karen Jones was uh, first minister, put the target of getting 50% of the people of Wales uh, Welsh speaking, or at least understanding Welsh fluently by the year 2050. Um, that is an ambitious target. I'm not quite sure whether we're on path at the moment to reach there. But the fact that you're um, willing to put a target is something that is worthwhile, because then you can work out what the steps you need to accomplish that target. And I think that we can work together across party lines to fulfil that. And we implied don't need to be afraid of the language. Neither does anybody else in Wales, because at the end of the day, it is something, our culture, that belongs to all of us. You mentioned when you were talking about the SNP, about them having to go into coalitions in order to govern. We've had a lot of denials from all the parties, as is you know, natural just before an election, that no one wants to go into coalition with anyone else. Do you think Plaid have to be open to that eventuality if they want to govern at least in the next few terms? Um, can I just correct you if I can be cheeky? Um, I don't think I said that the SNP had gone into a whole loads of coalitions at different times. What they did was secure a majority for different aspects of their governing program from different directions at different times. It wasn't coalition government. They worked for a period of time as a minority government. They did work as a majority government as well. And uh, they're looking like getting a, an overall majority in the forthcoming election. But they were able, Alex Hammond in that first parliament, when he only had one more vote, uh, one more seat than um, Labour had at that time. Um, he was able to do so by bringing forward um, a programme for government that was adjusted to the reality that he faced. If he wanted to get um, environmental policies through, he had to look to the Greens and one or two people like that. Social policies, he looked at people in the Labour Party, if not the leadership people on the back benches. If the pro-business policies, he might have to even look towards the Conservatives to see whether they would um, allow such policies to go through. And that would be, have to be the approach, to my mind, within our own parliament as well. That if we, if Plaid didn't have an overall majority, it should be tailoring from the basis of this election manifesto, putting a priority on those items where it could command a majority, looking in different directions for different purposes within the parliament itself. The challenge comes, of course, with the budget, because that budget brings together 
the priorities of all um, the departmental um, headings, and you have to balance one against the other. And sometimes it needs a tremendous amount of leadership to get that through. And at that point in time, Alex Salmond had the ability um, to charm people to follow his agenda. He's had a few ups and downs since then, but he succeeded in building a situation in Scotland that was quite incredible when you think where it was starting in 2006 and where it was by within eight years in 2014. It's quite incredible. Um, they, they almost got the momentum to win a, a referendum on independence. So yes, we need to have a manifesto up front, but we need to think ourselves, what would be the priorities if we don't have an overall majority in order to implement it? I stand happily corrected. Thank you very much, David. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, no. It's good clarification. I've talked a little bit about the growth in support for independence. We're hearing a lot at the moment about support for abolition growing. And whilst it's nowhere near what it was in the late 90s, does it feel uh, more possible now than it has since the Senate was established that uh, abolitionists may be in the ascendancy? Well, the, the first thing I'd say, of course, is that um, the fact that people are unhappy with some of the policies that have been pursued within the Senate, within the National Assembly, uh, as was by the government of Wales, the fact that they don't like the policies isn't a reason to abolish the institution. You know, if you don't like the policies being pursued by Boris Johnson at Westminster, do you abolish Westminster, the House of Commons and the House of Lords? Well, perhaps the House of Lords, but <laughs> um, no. I mean, you look for a better um, grouping of uh, representatives to pursue better policies. And therefore, you will get some people um, who have a pathological hatred of Wales and Welsh people being able to take any decisions for themselves and don't like the very concept of people identifying as being Welsh. But the, the number of people that take that view are very small. I mean, it's certainly under 20%, perhaps only 10%. And there's always been that rump of people who are opposed um, to the National Assembly and then the Senate as, uh, as it now is. But uh, of course, there was a very tight vote in 1997. I'll never forget that evening because I was there in the count with Ron Davis and we just squeaked a 6,000 vote majority, um, 51 to 49% um, uh, on an all Wales basis for the establishment of the National Assembly. By 2011, when there was another referendum to give the assemblies far greater power, power of uh, primary legislation and financial powers um, and all the rest, that referendum ended up in a two to one majority in favor of greater powers. No doubt that amongst those who opposed them were the people who didn't like the assembly, assembly or uh, devolution at all, but they were a minority and a far greater majority today supports us having control of our own affairs than did in 1997 and 1999. So yes, they'll be there. They have every right to um, speak of as they, they, they want to, but I don't believe they represent a majority of the people of Wales. And it would be such a retrograde step if we went back to the sort of days we had in the 1990s when we had John Redwood, a Secretary of State, a Secretary of State from a conservative government representing right-wing politics that had been rejected in Wales. And he thought that he had the right to govern Wales like a, a latter-day governor general. Well, that might have been the, the past in the last century. It isn't our future. I don't believe for one moment that we're going to go down that avenue. In Westminster, it seems, although there may not be a desire openly to sort of abolish devolution, there does seem to be some attempt by the Conservative government to undermine it. See things such as the uh, Internal Market Act and 
Boris calling devolution a disaster. Do you think these things will have an impact on the way that Wales is able to uh, govern itself and run its own affairs? Well, Boris keeps shooting himself in the foot, doesn't he? I mean, calling devolution a disaster when he's going to need the presentation of a radical devolution as the alternative to independence in Scotland. I mean, really, um, I do feel sorry for him at times, but um, I think there are far more deserving people who <laughs> need our sympathy than Boris Johnson. With regard to the internal market bill, well, quite clearly, when we left the European Union, regrettably, um, we had to get a, a structure that allows for the internal United Kingdom market to work, and there had to be legislation um, for that. The problem was that Westminster wanted to uh, take some of the powers coming back from Brussels, even in fully devolved areas such as agriculture, and to be running them from Westminster, which would mean imposing the English view and the English priorities over Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Now then, that should not be happening. There are some things that you have to have resolved on a UK uh, basis to ensure that there is fair uh, play and that there isn't the undermining, unfair undermining um, of one uh, country's economy um, by the other. But what this comes down to is the mechanism by which you sort out the problem. The need for there to be a coming together of representatives of Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland and England in some body detached from Westminster and detached from the other three governments as well to resolve areas of conflict. And for that to be not just on a population basis where um, England would have so many representatives, they would swamp Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland together, but for there need to be a qualified majority vote within that structure in order to um, resolve the difficulties that are arising. And for there to be an acceptance at Westminster, in Cardiff, in Edinburgh and Belfast that such a ruling would be acceptable. Now then, we had a tremendous fight on that um, in the autumn leading through to Christmas, and most of the fight was actually in the House of Lords. Um, and there were um, people from all parties and no parties, people um, like um, Lord Thomas of Cumgear, the former Lord Chief Justice, um, uh, played a, a, a leading part, and Elora Finlay uh, from, uh, from Cardiff. Um, the House of Lords, I think, persuaded the, the government to realize that they had to change emphasis in this. And the jury is still out. There's still fine tuning that's needed. But I think we can get a compromise on that with which we, with which we can live. But uh, it is a difficult um, uh, instance in that when we went into the European Union, there wasn't devolution. And when we come out, these bodies are there, ready to take responsibility. And how you get the balance between that and Westminster is something that will be seen differently from the different four corners of these islands. Do you have uh, something that you could identify as a career highlight? Oh, my goodness. In, you're talking about my political career, not sure, my indus yeah. industrial yeah. career, <laughs> I, I, I assume, because before going into politics, I mean, I was uh, um, in the world of industry with Ford, Mars and uh, Hoover. And um, my great um, happiness in leaving Hoover was that I left just after we succeeded in getting an expansion plan for investment in Merthyr which would today be equivalent to almost £200 million investment, with the government putting in a lot of money and speeding up the uh, A470s to deal with it uh, um, up beyond Merthyr. Um, and that was something that I was very proud of. And when, I, after having become Member of Parliament for Carnarvon, one of the things that I had great pleasure with was setting up 
a small company employing just one person. I was a chairman of the company for 11 years of independent existence, doing it as a hobby on a Sunday morning. Um, but we built it up and it uh, eventually was employing and is employing some 400 people in Llanberis is now uh, part of the Siemens um, structure, um, medical diagnostics. So there are things like that that have given me great satisfaction outside of politics. But within politics, the things apart from obviously getting the home rule movement to uh, a climax that delivered devolution. And I didn't do this myself, but I was very happy to have been able to work with Ron Davis and others um, in getting that yes vote um, in 1997. That clearly was a highlight. But otherwise, there were uh, highlights in, for example, the legislative um, sphere in the world of disability. In 1981, it was the International Year of Disabled People. And we had two disabled boys, and so the disability agenda was very high on my personal um, list of priorities. And I came out of the ballot um, fairly low down, number 11, and my bill was talked out by a Tory. And we succeeded in mobilizing people throughout the United Kingdom to lobby their members of parliament, so much so that we got 340 MPs to sign a motion in support of my bill, over half the House. It's very, very rarely that that happened. And the government had to concede and they allowed the bill to become an act. And that then led to the 1986 Disabled Persons Act, for which I was the campaign manager. And then in the 90s, when John Measures was Prime Minister, to getting the disability discrimination legislation through. And uh, I worked closely, John Measures was my parliamentary pair, and we worked on that agenda um, to, to deliver. So um, outside the constitutional questions, and the questions relating um, just to Wales or to Europe, the question of disability politics has been a high priority and it remains so. David, we've got one last question for you. If you had one wish for the future of Wales, what would you like to see? I'd like to see the people of Wales taking full responsibility for their own lives, um, not just on a political level, but on all levels, uh, in terms of developing the economy, taking responsibility, setting up ventures, in terms of the social agenda and the environmental agenda, taking the responsibilities that are so important to us. Working with our neighbors in the United Kingdom, but also with our neighbors in continental Europe, but not restricted to that. Looking out also to the third world, world which is far more challenged than we are in Wales, despite our difficulties at this point in time. We have responsibilities around the globe towards our fellow human beings, towards our environment and towards our future. Now then if all the people of Wales particularly the young people of Wales, whose future it is, if they can recognise these responsibilities and act on them, then we can play our part, our small part, in helping to ensure a fairer world and a fairer future for our people. David Wigley, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Hiraith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.